Great, thanks uh, Lou very much indeed. Let's uh, <clears throat> get underway then, shall we, uh, in today's episode of following Jesus. You've got the idea, uh, I trust by now, the idea of following. It's not the kind of Twitter following or the kind of fan club following or the kind of organization newsletter that you receive, the national trust following kind of thing but something altogether different. When a disciple was called by a rabbi to follow, it was all about the rabbi believing that the disciple was able to become like him. And that's the deal. That's the kind of following that Jesus is offering us. Uh, He believes in us and says, come, follow me. And We know from all kinds of verses in the New Testament that the goal of our faith is not in a set of things we might believe, however essential that is, or or even ticking off a few things that we need to do, however important that is. But you and I were called, before the foundation of the world, the Bible says, staggeringly to be like his son, to be like Jesus. That's the call on our lives and nothing less. And so you would expect to begin to see the family resemblance. Jesus, the first of many brothers, with him, alongside him, plugged into the same father, we begin to look like him, to think like him, to become like him. That's the goal. So the question this morning, as we look at uh, 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 this passage, is the same question every time. You see, because this passage will reveal something to us about Jesus. But what it will really show us is who and what we should become. Which, of course, is a different thing altogether, isn't it? It's not just me discovering what Jesus was like, but in seeing what Jesus was like, feel the challenge that I'm called to be like him. It will answer, I think, along the way, a few questions. Like, what kind of friends should we have if we want to follow Jesus? What kind of places should we go if we want to be like Jesus? Where should we invest significant amounts of our relational energy if we want to be like him? These are challenging, challenging questions. And most of my Christianity... Most of the Christianity that I experience is closer to the Pharisees that we will see in just a moment in this area than it is to being like Jesus. So with that tease, let's get into the text. Verse 27. Hope you have it open in front of you. I'm not making this up. These things really are in the Bible. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Jesus went out and adopts the posture of seeking. Jesus was seeking those that he understood to be lost. The last, the lost, and the least. The whole of his orientation was to push on to seek lost people. In fact, he would say later on, when he met another tax collector, this is the reason that I've come, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his whole orientation. Think about this lost man with me just for a moment. This guy, Levi. 
He was a tax collector, which might be enough for some of you to sum him up. Israel was occupied at that time by the Romans. It's easy to forget the hostility and the humiliation into which all of this occurred. Imagine living in occupied France during the Second World War. Levi, a Jew, was working for the Romans as a tax collector, the occupying force. As a Frenchman, he was helping the Nazis against his own people. Three types of tax were collected, a land tax, a head tax, and a transport or a goods tax. Levi was involved in collecting the goods or the transport tax. He had a tax office or booth, and these tax offices or booths would be located near the gates to the city or or near significant ports where goods would come in and out. Urged on by greed, these tax collectors used their local knowledge who was making the money and where, in order to maximise profits for the Romans and take an awful lot of of cut off the top in order to make their trouble worthwhile. They were traitors. They were turncoats. They were ripping off their own people. They were dumping on the people that they grew up with. The taxation was exuberant. They were dishonest and disloyal. All of this, though, made Levi very wealthy. We know that he had a large house. It also made him very hated, despised even. It was an ugly business. Levi had to make sure that people pay. Like a lung shark, he had threats and menaces and ways of enforcing his demands. His big boys would be sent round whenever he asked them and wherever he asked them to go. If there was a movie involving Levi, he would be a Ross Kemp-type character. Uh, He would have the baseball bat in his drawer, and so on and so forth. He was like a pimp and an informant, all rolled into one, Levi. Jesus sees him, this man, and loves him, and calls him, saying, come Follow me. Remember all that those words said from last week. So important that we hear and feel the weight of what Jesus was doing in calling Levi to become like him. Now, who's watching and listening and standing by as Jesus calls Levi? The Pharisees were. Who else? Who was standing closer to Jesus than the Pharisees? The disciples, Peter, James, John and Andrew, the ones that have already been called, the Talmudim, the group of students that are right behind him, wanting to be covered in the dust of their rabbi, all this stuff last week. Who is now absolutely freaking out with what Jesus is doing? The disciples are going bananas. This is a movie. They're in the corner here and all the audience are relating to them as they're going berserk. What on earth is this? Why is Jesus calling him to become one of us? Like everybody else, Peter, James, Andrew and John hated Levi because they hated all of the tax collectors and those like him. At least they might not have been good enough to be rabbis, the best of the best, but at least they'd gone back to a proper trade and worked hard and been honest uh, men and given back to their community. 
This is just conjecture, this next bit. All that's for certain. The next bit is just me, and I think I'm right. When we get to heaven, we'll work it out, okay? This is my conjecture. And I wouldn't be surprised at all, given the Bible, if it's closer to the truth than we might dare believe. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are fishermen who work the Lake of Galilee. Small sea. They come in through the port at Capernaum, where they would be required to pay their tax. We know that Levi had his tax booth near the port of Capernaum. Is it possible, yes it is, that Levi was their tax collector? Is it possible that this man was not just symbolic of all tax collectors that they hated, this was the tax collector that they'd grown to loathe. Levi, who'd been in their class at school, he was one of them, he played their games, he'd lived in their village, his mum still lived down the street, yet now he was the one standing by the edge of the lake in all his finery and his best perfume and his manicured hands, waiting to collect the money from these knackered out, worn out fishermen that had been out all night to earn an honest wage and he's there demanding his money and they hated him and every time Peter complained he threatened to send the mob round and every time Andrew said this isn't fair he said well I'll tell that Roman soldier if you like it was Levi that gestured to Andrew, Simon and Peter the deceit, the betrayal he made their blood boil and now they're freaking out because Jesus is inviting them him, to join their gang. And what that meant, you see, in that culture, not only did you have a Talmudim, like a band of disciples that followed a rabbi, but the Talmudim would kind of pair off into twos and threes to become accountability partners. Who's going to have Levi? And so they're totally thrown by what Jesus did. However much we might be thrown that he called fishermen, this is way off the page by anybody's standards and by anybody's reckoning. But this is the kind of community that Jesus is building. You see, we find ourselves beginning to think like those Pharisees will sound like in just a few verses' time. What's he doing with this guy? But this is the kind of community that Jesus is building. You see, Levi followed immediately. And the reason he followed immediately is because most people want to change their lives. Most people won't admit that they want to change their lives because that's really hard unless you know there's something you can change too, isn't it? If you don't think there's, a, there's an option, a way out, then it's way too painful and vulnerable to admit that you want to change. And so we live so often surrounded by people in a kind of facade that the, the life as I have is the life that I want to live. But if you scratch below the surface, you discover something different. Levi wanted his life to change. And so he responded so quickly and so effortlessly as Jesus called him and he left everything and followed him. Jesus was saying to Levi, no one has believed in you ever in your life, but I believe in you. Everyone in this community thinks, Levi, that you are a loser, that you are a waste, that you're worse than a waste. But I believe you can become like me. I believe you can make something of your life. I believe you can serve God as I serve him. And so he didn't think twice. 
Interestingly, the word about following, it's the imperfect tense. So it's not the idea that Levi left and followed a a one-off occasion, but it's like Levi began to follow and would spend the rest of his life learning to follow Jesus. He was on his way. But the disciples are going bananas, I would imagine. And you can understand why. Jesus came and sought people out. Who are you seeking out? Who are you seeking out? You see, one of the things that occurs to me is there were loads of people that Jesus could have chosen down at that port that day. Loads of people. But he chose Levi. Why did he choose Levi? Was Levi a person of peace for Jesus? All of that stuff about the, the way that uh, people give us a welcome in, in some way. You can, if you just search person of peace on my blog, if that's a new idea, give you some things just to reflect about the way that Jesus uh, encourages people to look for a person that will give them a welcome. Why did Jesus choose Levi? I don't know the answer to that. But who are you choosing? Who are you seeking out? If you say everyone, you'll seek no one. So who who are you seeking out? As you open your heart to God and say, Lord, what does it mean to to be someone who seeks others out, who seeks out those who are lost? If that's what Jesus did, that's my discipleship challenge. If I'm going to be like Jesus, then I need to seek out someone, like he sought someone out. Who am I being called to seek out? And am I missing the person that God is asking me to seek out because of my prejudice? Because of my own ideas about who they should be. Does my own agenda cloud out the very person God's asking me to seek? interesting, I have to say on this missional journey, both here with people talking about their missional visions and and, and elsewhere, so often people say, it was not the person I expected. Levi was not the person any of them, maybe except Jesus, expected. And he calls him, and he comes and he follows. Let's not underestimate how hard it is Let's not underestimate how hard it was for those disciples. How many months of walking with Jesus, living with Jesus, eating with Jesus, spending the night around the campfire with Jesus, how many months did it take for Peter and James and John to get over their angst, their prejudice, their hate? What bitterness needed healing and what anger needed cleansing and what forgiveness needed to be offered for these guys to become brothers? who one day would die for God and for each other as they took on the kingdom of darkness and won. That's the kind of community Jesus is seeking to build. That's powerful, isn't it? What was it like to spend that first night with Levi round the fire? And do you know that verse when Jesus says, oh, the world will know because of our love for one another? And you often hear it talked about, oh, well, well, when Baptists and Anglicans get on together, it shows that we love one another, and the whole world's going to know. Come on. This kind of thing is what puts that verse into context. This kind of thing is what gives that verse meaning. When Matthew has Levi in his tent that night. Hello? Am I tracking? Anyone here? Anyone still interested? 
Just checking. This was an amazing thing. An amazing missional community that Jesus is seeking to create. So if the first word then is seeking, the second word is staying. In our familiarity with the story, it's easy to miss, I think, some of the subtleties that are going on here. We know that that Levi left everything. What did leaving everything mean? Because clearly he didn't actually leave everything. He still had his house. And as we'll see in a moment, he still had his friends, in inverted commas, maybe. Notice how the, the, the passage pans out. Verse 27 and verse 32 are like bookends to the story. Verse 27 is the calling of Levi. Verse 32 is Jesus' commentary on what has just happened and what is happening. That sinners are being called to repentance. What Jesus is saying is that's what Levi has done. Levi has left everything about his old life. Levi has completely reorientated his life away from himself to God. But in Levi's case, that didn't mean physically leaving his home physically leaving his uh, friends in this instance that we are sharing in here. But it did mean letting go of everything and seeing what he did have, now under God's stewardship, to be totally dedicated and given over. He had a house that he was about to effectively give to Jesus. He had relationships that he was about to give to Jesus. For Levi, leaving everything meant staying with what he had and using it completely differently. He left everything about his way of life, but not the people of his way of life. I think that's really important. So Levi throws a mega party in honour of Jesus, to which all his friends were invited. Everyone needs friends, and Levi had friends. They're called others in this verse. Them, others, inverted commas, you might as well put. You see, the only friends he could get were the other lowlifes on the margins, ostracized from society. The thieves and the robbers and the outcasts and the prostitutes and the drug pushers and the gang members. All those that everyone else can't stand, who collectively get grouped as them others. Often the Bible will say tax collectors and sinners, or tax collectors, thieves, robbers and evildoers. Call those others what you like. But we do that, don't we? Them others, those that aren't like me, those that are not part of who I am, those that I want to disassociate myself from. So we held a banquet for them others with Jesus. So you've got this house now full of prostitutes and perverts and pimps and dealers and addicts and thieves and godless social pariahs and all kinds of evildoers. What's the dress code like? What's the conversation like? What's the language like? What kind of things are going on at that kind of party? I wouldn't last 30 seconds in that kind of party. No, no. (laughs) Quite right. In fact, you and I would never have gone near. Yet Jesus walks right in with his disciples, who, by the way, are really freaking out by now, I'm sure. It's one thing for them, Jesus, to call Levi, quite another thing to go around to his place for drinks and nibbles, and quite another again to spend their social life with all of his friends. 
What on earth is going on? Peter's praying like mad that his mum won't find out. Can you imagine? See, imagine for a moment if I was at Levi's party and someone gets their iPhone out and takes a picture of me eating with a local dealer, a couple of known prostitutes in the background, and there's definitely a burglar just in the foreground there, and they tweet it. Or they post it on Facebook and they tag me in it. Well, what would that be like for a moment? Seriously, what would that be like? I would fear losing my job. At the very least, you would want, expect an explanation. Tell you, at the very least, I would give you an explanation if you caught me at a place like that. We'd need to clear things up, wouldn't we? Neither you nor I would shrug our shoulders and say, well, of course, that's the kind of thing Jesus does. So, of course, we'd expect our leader to be there. Nervous laughter around the room. That's what Jesus did, wasn't it? I know I'm being provocative, but I, I think we've got to feel this because it's, it, it's way out of our comfort zone. It's so radical. And it highlights to me how far Christianity has veered away from the Jesus we follow. Jesus went right in, accepted the invitation, became guest of honor, not begrudgingly or nervously, not with precious about his reputation, but wholeheartedly and joyfully, like the whole reason he was on earth was to be there. Follow Jesus for Levi meant staying with those who were part of his social network. It meant building community with those that he wanted to meet Jesus for themselves. Following Jesus for Levi meant staying in the world with all the euphemism associations with that word I can possibly muster. That's not the Christian culture that I've known. The Christian culture that I have known has spent all of its time and been around me most of my life implicitly or explicitly talking about Christians needing to come out of the world. Like Levi, you become a Christian and you are no longer, ready for a cheer, of the world. Moderately excited about that. Because you are no longer of the world, we have assumed, and for very good reasons, we have assumed that if we're not of the world, then the right thing to do is for us to come out of the world. And that's what we've done. And that's what we've modelled at all kinds of different levels. And being out of the world has meant historically, and some of you in your traditions will remember this, and certainly I remember some of it and have glimpses of others of it, meant not going to certain places. Being out of the world meant not going to a pub, and definitely never to a club. Being out of the world meant not going to the cinema. Because if Jesus came back while you were at the cinema, he wouldn't find you. It's true. Now, let's not be harsh. Because the reason behind that, and we've all bought into it, was a good one. Was a good one. But we've ended up 
with something that's far from Jesus in terms of what he lived and in terms of what he said. At the end of his life, when he's praying for us, his disciples, he, pray, he prays for they are not of the world, woo, any more than I am not of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Oh, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. John uses the word for world cosmos, which has particularly negative, dark associations. It has the worldly way that we use it. You know, is the, the, these are of the world in a negative, kind of dark and evil way. That's the word he uses. We're sent into it, called to stay in it, not scuttle away from it. Shelter in our home groups and our prayer meetings and our Sunday services. So who are you scuttling from that you should be staying with? That's a fair question for any follower of Jesus. The idea of staying in the world is profoundly uncomfortable because of the deep identification that Jesus asks us to have with it. Eating and drinking. In Middle Eastern culture, that was saying, it was like Jesus saying, I belong here. These are my people. These are the people that I want to share my life with. These are the people I'm going to stand with and protect and help and serve. We get the word table fellowship. It's a very nice Christian word, isn't it? Which means it has a nice doily and a white cloth. Table fellowship. But this is where it comes from, this kind of idea. We sanctified it in a kind of... This is why the Pharisees are hyperventilating. Because Jesus is rewriting the book completely. That every level, Jesus is identifying with them and staying with them. Jesus had these people around his table, effectively. Levi had these people around his table. Would we? Do we? That's not the same, is it? Notice the world of difference, and I've been quite challenged by this this week. Notice the world of difference between serving a group of people a meal at church, that's a really good thing to do, isn't it? Than having those people around your table. There's a world of difference between those two things, isn't there? That's why the disciples are freaking out. Because Jesus was saying, let's have these guys round our table. Not the church's table or somebody else's. Let's have them round our table. The people that you love the most are only the people you get round your table, generally. You guard your table, don't you? Or does anyone sit round your table? I don't think so. We guard our table, fiercely sometimes. Some of us have guarded our table that we haven't had anyone round for a long, long time. And so everyone, everyone wants to know the answer to this question. Everyone. The Pharisees are about to ask a question, and they ask the disciples the question, because I'm sure they can see by the look of the disciples' face, the disciples haven't got a clue what they're doing there either. So everyone, it seems, wants to know, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees certainly wanted to know, because it went against their religion. The disciples really wanted to know because it went against every sensibility they'd ever had. The sinners and tax collectors wanted to know because nothing like this had ever happened to them. Everyone except Jesus wants to know why he's there. And what does he say? What does he say? Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The goal, he says, is saving, rescuing people's lives. That's why I'm there. It's a really important final perspective, isn't it? And the reason to go back to this issue about why we've drawn people out of the world, you see, we've done that with very good reason, haven't we? 
Churches and ministers and Sunday school teachers and parents realize how fragile faith is. And we long for faith to be nurtured and for people to grow in the faith. And we know how easy it is for people to make wrong turns. And we know how easy it is for people to fall into the wrong crowd. And so we've sought to protect people by gathering them in and keeping them safe. I'll keep my kids safe by locking them up. And we've done that in a Christian sense, in a spiritual sense. I want faith to be strong, so I'll protect it by keeping it in. And that became our reason to exist. That we might huddle together, pun, and hold ourselves till Jesus came back and keep ourselves safe. But what about a huddle that sends people out? Different kind of thing altogether. You see, we'd love as parents to dictate every place our children cannot go. And we'd love to organize their friends and all of that stuff to protect them. The illusion is... The illusion, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion, absolute illusion. The illusion is that we're creating strong faith as we protect it in here. Strong faith in here is diddly squat easy. Hello? The measure of your faith is how, what's happening out there, not what happens in here. And so we go, oh, we've got all this faith and it, the worship and the blessing, and oh, it's, uh, and don't get me wrong, that's fantastic. But the measure of our faith is how it stands up out there. And so the illusion is we're creating people with strong faith by drawing them out of the world. But it is an illusion because if you put them back just a little bit into the world, if you put their faith to work, we're scared witless that it's going to go wrong. Christians that can't have non-Christian friends because they'll get led astray, can't go to a place and still be morally upright and pure. You know, I always admired my sister, who was way more sociable than uh, me or my brother. I know that's really hard to understand, that someone could be more sociable than us miserable male chauvinists. But th- there it is. She was. And, and she, would, she would go to all the places, send my dad bananas, and love Jesus, and be with people when they're drunk and puking and all that stuff, and still love Jesus. Isn't that the deal? Isn't that the faith that works? The faith that's strong and secure. And so, we have to generate that faith so we can only push out in mission, out in mission, as deep we go in with discipleship. You cannot push one edge of the triangle out if you don't push the other one out too. And so one of the reasons we're scared witness of pushing people out, oh my goodness, they might go out on a Sunday morning, realise that having coffee and washing the car is such a nice thing to do, and never come back. Well, what kind of faith would be nurtured if that's what happens? So, there we go. Happy days. What was he doing there? What was he doing in Levi's house? He said, well, a son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't think you've been accused of that recently. And I'm kind of relieved as a pastor. Do you know that you haven't? But in another way, it stretches me. Because he came to seek and save the lost. And I find him at Levi's house really comfortable. And I wouldn't be comfortable there for five seconds. And I ask myself, what does it mean to follow? If I was his Talmudine and he went into Levi's house, would I have gone? Or would I have stood outside with the Pharisees going, I've got no idea what's going on here. This Jesus is out of his mind. 
would I have been the first to let Levi come in my tent on that first night they traveled together? That's the discipleship question, isn't it? When Jesus says, come, follow me. I believe that you can be like me. Let's pray.